Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 2.9, The June Assembly. We left off last week with Governor Berkeley declaring that Nathaniel Bacon, for his role in leading forces against the Indians on the frontier without his permission, was now a traitor. Berkeley was left with little choice and had to do something to reassert the authority that Bacon had so seriously challenged. What results are some of the most tumultuous times in the entire rebellion. This week, we are going to spend our time examining how William Berkeley took a tense situation, poured gasoline on it, packed it with explosives, and then threw in a match for good measure. We are going to focus mostly on June of 1676 today as we see Berkeley take misstep after misstep, pushing the colony into the throes of an open rebellion. William Berkeley very quickly realized that he had a serious problem on his hands. Immediately after Bacon and his men set out into the frontier, Berkeley could see the writing on the wall. On May 10th, Berkeley put out a call demanding that those under Bacon's command stand down. Only a handful were interested in the message, with most just choosing to ignore it. Those who did listen tended to be the large landowners who were basically the only ones still loyal to Berkeley. Upon declaring Bacon a traitor, Berkeley failed to get the rousing response that he might have hoped for. Instead of rallying to the cause of their increasingly beleaguered governor, the colonists rallied over to the side of Bacon. After all, Bacon understood their plight. From the viewpoint of the frontier colonists, they had been long ignored, except at tax time, for years by the Virginia Assembly. The government wasn't working for the small planters, it was working for Berkeley and his fellow assembly members. Bacon, who was now affectionately being referred to as General Bacon, was a man of the people. Even though Bacon really did have more in common with men like Berkeley and the rest of the assembly, he was the guy on the frontier. He knows their struggles, and instead of just trying to use the occasion as an excuse to extract more tax dollars, he was out there actually doing something about it. Following his declaration that Bacon was a traitor, Berkeley, as well as a few hundred men who were loyal to him, made their way up to the James River to wait for Bacon to be intercepted and arrested. Bacon smartly had become aware of this and had little interest in being arrested by the governor. Berkeley, by this point, is beginning to see the writing on the wall. He understood that, well, there were still those within the colony who were loyal to him. He was rapidly losing the support of the colonists. The wealthy landowners who had gained so much under Berkeley remained loyal. Everybody else, however, was at a minimum feeling overtaxed, and for those out on the frontier, they felt as though Berkeley had abandoned them so that he could maintain his position in the fur trade. Knowing that his position as the governor of Virginia was now in serious jeopardy, Berkeley goes ahead and, for the first time in over 14 years, calls for a general election. Berkeley himself by this point is an old man. He has been in power for a long time and was ready to just throw his hands up on the matter and head back to England. Berkeley wrote back to England letting them know that he would be happy to resign the governorship and that England needs to send somebody new. He blamed his increasing loss of control over the fact that he had become an old man and that a more vigorous governor was needed to run Virginia. So now many of you are probably sitting there more than a little confused. Berkeley is prepared to step down. He has called for a general election. Where does the rebellion come from? 
didn't Bacon and his men get more than what they were asking for? It is an interesting thought what would have happened if Berkeley withdrew the warrant and gave into the clearly widespread support that Bacon had. Would he have been able to turn this event into nothing more than a case of insubordination and the end of his personal political career? Of course, we know that Berkeley isn't going to do that. He is going to take the path that is going to turn this incident into something far larger than it really ever needed to be. The problem for Berkeley isn't that he wasn't willing to step down, but rather he was unwilling to change his course as it concerned Bacon. After returning to Jamestown without Bacon on May 29th, Berkeley gave an impassioned speech, setting himself apart from the rebel Bacon. He made clear that he'd given decades of service to the colony and that under his command, Virginia had thrived. The speech was, in every sense, Berkeley doing what he could to maintain the political systems that he had been so influential in building. The last thing that he wanted was for somebody like Nathaniel Bacon to stroll in and undo a decades-long career. The plea takes place on the eve of the election and was meant to plead his case to keep the colony the same as it had been. Recognizing the danger, the next day Berkeley sent his wife, a large amount of his personal fortune, and that letter describing the current conditions, as well as his request for a replacement, on board a ship bound for London. As a result of the election, the man who Berkeley had himself named a traitor, Nathaniel Bacon, found himself as an elected representative from the county of Henrico. To give you an idea of the locations that we are talking about, Henrico County is the eastern side of modern-day Richmond. Despite there being a warrant for his arrest, Bacon was not going to take his responsibility lightly. Bacon boarded a ship and set sail down the James River for Jamestown, with every intention of taking his seat in the assembly. Well, tensions have been mounting for a long time, it really has felt that a full-blown rebellion could have been avoided. Had Berkeley accepted the public mandate following the election, allowed Bacon to take his seat, and then let reform follow, then I think there is a pretty good bet that I'm not having to spend weeks writing episodes about Bacon's rebellion. However, when it comes to the question of the revolt becoming inevitable, Berkeley is about to ensure that a minor civil disturbance becomes a full-fledged rebellion. On June 6, a ship carrying Nathaniel Bacon, plus 40 or so bodyguards, made its way down the James River towards Jamestown, eventually docking at Swan Point, a small outcropping of land directly across the James River from Jamestown. Bacon was on his way to take his seat in the assembly. The bodyguards on board the ship were made up from the veterans of the campaigns against the Indians, and they came armed with muskets. They made their message clear. General Bacon was going to Jamestown, he was going to take his seat as the representative from Henrico County, and he was going to be their voice in the assembly. Despite Bacon's reassurances to his men that he was confident that he would be allowed to take his seat in the assembly, one has got to believe that Bacon himself would have doubted this assertion. Now, to further prove his point that he was going to be able to take that seat, he decided to send a few men in a rowboat along to make sure that the coast was clear and all was going to go well. It was an ominous sign of things to come when the men failed to return. It was an even worse sign when the cannons mounted for the defense of Jamestown opened fire on Bacon and his men. Bacon, unsurprisingly, was not super thrilled with this reception and quickly cut anchor and got out of dodge. As Bacon sailed away from Swamp Point, 
several of the ships anchored across the river in Jamestown, joined in the fun, and opened fire on Bacon and his men. The good news for Nathaniel Bacon is that the artillerymen had really poor aim. Bacon and his men aboard the ships were able to escape without a scratch. However, by this point it was clear that Berkeley was not messing around. This is not something that he was going to simply let drop. With the opening salvo by Berkeley, the ball had really shifted to Bacon's court. Bacon could either pack up and get out of Virginia, or he could regroup and return to take his seat. Much as in the same vein as Berkeley, Bacon had no intention of just letting this go. He had, after all, been elected the representative from Henrico County. He knows that for him, this moment is just as critical as it is for Berkeley. Should Bacon back down now and flee Virginia, it is going to leave those living on the frontier vulnerable, not just to the violence of the Indians, but to the machinations of the governor and the assembly. Bacon had no intention of backing down and fleeing from the colony. However, at this exact moment, he does have some more pressing issues that he's going to have to deal with. At the very top of that list is that moments earlier, he had come under cannon fire back in Jamestown. After hanging out for a few hours out of sight, and more importantly out of range, in the early morning hours of June 7th, Bacon turned around and was able to sail right back into Jamestown, landing at Sandy Bay. Because, you know, apparently nobody on Berkeley's side thought that having a watch might be a good idea. Following the landing, Bacon and his men marched through Jamestown, unmolested, to the house of Richard Lawrence. Lawrence was well off and he had a nice estate inside of Jamestown. More importantly, however, he, like Bacon, viewed Governor Berkeley as corrupt. His home had become something of a headquarters for Berkeley resistance inside of Jamestown. While the resistance had previously been constrained to some grumbling and complaining about Berkeley in the assembly, with Bacon's arrival in Jamestown, the resistance had quickly taken a quantum leap forward. In his resistance to Berkeley's rule were men like William Drummond and John Culpepper. Together, Culpepper, who was the leader, Drummond and Lawrence, formed the core of the resistance against Berkeley for his leadership. In this moment, they were most importantly friendly faces who were more than happy to give aid to Bacon and his men. All three men, as well as Bacon, were largely cut from the same cloth. They were all educated, wealthy, and articulate. They were the perfect group to lead a rebellion. While sitting around and waxing poetic about the corrupt nature of William Berkeley may have been what the men really wanted to do, the fact remained that for Bacon, stagnation very likely meant death. He was a wanted man and wasn't exactly hiding out in a forest. He was sitting right there in the middle of Jamestown. Just prior to dawn on the 7th, after spending the last several hours at the Lawrence house, Bacon and his men decided to retreat from Jamestown. They managed to make their way back down to the boat and set sail. However, before they could get out of Sandy Bay, the sheriff of James County appeared on the deck of the Adam and Eve, a large tobacco boat. The boat was heavily armed and quickly opened up on Bacon and his men. Unlike the day before, Bacon would not escape this time and instead was forced to head back to the shores of Jamestown, which obviously was a less than ideal situation for him. After a tense standoff, Bacon and his men realized that they had little choice and surrendered. On June the 10th, it certainly appeared as though Berkeley had won the day. The rebel Bacon and his men were in custody. 
That afternoon, Begin was brought into the statehouse where he would meet face-to-face with Governor Berkeley. However, much to everybody's surprise, Berkeley didn't exactly seem to take advantage of his moment. He used his time to call out Drummond and Lawrence and warn of the dangers that they posed. He allowed Bacon to confess, which Bacon did, charged Bacon a fine of 2,000 pounds, and then agreed that if Bacon promised not to overthrow the Virginia government, he would go ahead and authorize Bacon to lead a force out against the Indians. Berkeley even went so far as to allow Bacon back onto the council. Okay, so what gives? Berkeley, for all of his anger, is just going to force Bacon into making an empty apology? This entire ordeal was really just to help Governor Berkeley feel better? Everybody in the Virginia House of Burgesses was just as stunned. Seriously, nobody anticipated this and everybody is just trying to figure out what is going on at this point. Did Governor Berkeley come to his senses and decide that the path to peace is by meeting Bacon's demands? Well, as it turns out, no. That isn't the case at all. You see, Berkeley at this point was sitting on information that nobody else appeared to have known. Berkeley was becoming concerned over the fact that the Virginia militia was taking their sweet time to fully garrison Jamestown and prepare for the defense of the city. Defense from what, you ask? Well, at that same time, a large number of Bacon supporters were coming to town. They were armed, they were angry, and they were determined to air their grievances to the governor and the assembly. Berkeley was, to his very core, a royalist. He had supported Charles I during the Civil War. He supported Charles II during the Restoration. The only time when he was not the governor of Virginia was during those years when Cromwell was in power. However, despite personally supporting and being friends with Charles I, Berkeley had basically zero interest in following his example in death. Berkeley just was not super excited to be dragged out by an angry mob and beheaded. With this in mind, Berkeley gave a generous pardon for Bacon, made a nice show of mercy, and intended that with Bacon pardoned and actually getting exactly what he wanted, the angry mob would turn around and leave Jamestown. To his credit, Berkeley guessed correctly. Bacon was freed and hey, the concessions were pretty sweet. With no reason to hang around Jamestown, the rabble promptly turned around and went back home. Berkeley figured that through these concessions, he would be able to remove the immediate risk. He would pacify Bacon's followers and more importantly, would keep them from getting too interested in hunting around Berkeley's finances. The problem, however, for Berkeley is that he couldn't move past Nathaniel Bacon. If Berkeley had just stayed on this path, there is a decent chance that Bacon's rebellion is nothing more than a mere footnote. Berkeley, however, decides to go in a just totally different direction here. As much as the people in the House of Burgesses were shocked, so was Nathaniel Bacon. Bacon, one would sure assume, was aware that being captured by Berkeley and forces probably wasn't going to end well for him. So a pardon was not something that he would have seen coming. Bacon, rightly, was not just surprised by the pardon, he was also very skeptical about it. Those who had come to protect Bacon were going home, and very quickly Bacon was going to find himself all alone once again. Bacon was right to worry. Berkeley had no plans to let this go, and on the night of June 11th, Berkeley issued a new arrest warrant for Bacon. Having cleared Bacon's loyalists out of town, Berkeley now had a chance to bring the militia in to make sure that Jamestown was properly prepared 
should the rabble decide to come back, calling for their soon-to-be-recaptured leader. Berkeley, by all accounts, was not planning to mess around this time. The order of the day was to capture Bacon and execute him before a rescue mission could be launched. When Bacon's supporters returned to Jamestown, Berkeley was set on their leader being dead. Hopefully, nobody would be all that interested in fighting a war over a dead man and they would all just go back home, disappointed to be sure, but without launching an attack. On the morning of June 12th, men loyal to Berkeley stormed the Lawrence house, where Bacon was expected to be hiding. Except Bacon apparently missed the memo that he was supposed to be holed up at Lawrence House. When news reached Berkeley that Bacon wasn't there at all, the governor realized that he had made a gigantic mistake. By this point, the news was out there that he had reissued the warrant. Bacon's men were coming, and General Bacon wasn't going to be anywhere near as dead as Berkeley had hoped he would be. Berkeley, knowing what he had to do, you know, defend Jamestown from the incoming angry mob, instead decided to take another path. Berkeley, after evaluating the situation, said, Yeah, no, I'm going to go ahead and leave now. He quickly packed up his belongings, went to the treasury and withdrew his money, made his way to Sandy Bay, and decided to get out of town while he still could and catch up with his wife. If all went as planned, Berkeley would be on his way to London in just a few days. I think it goes without saying that just basically running away from the incoming storm, a storm largely caused by him, is not a wonderful look for Berkeley. However, all things considered, his real mistake in this situation is not that he decided to leave Jamestown to the rabble. The real mistake, at least personally for Berkeley, is not making sure that the ship was ready to go. Berkeley suddenly found himself sitting on a ship that was at least a week away from being ready to leave. Keep in mind that we are just 36 hours past Berkeley's surprise pardon, the one he made because Bacon's men were beginning to flood into the poorly defended Jamestown. Simple math tells us that these men loyal to Bacon are much closer than a week away. Berkeley, as it turns out, could also do math and quickly figured out that he had a very serious problem on his hands. He wasn't going to be able to hightail it to London before a now furious mob descended on Jamestown. If Berkeley had been concerned by the Bacon supporters days before, he must now have been terrified of them. Now, they were not only upset over the treatment of Bacon, but they were feeling mightily double-crossed by the governor. Understanding this predicament, Berkeley was forced to accept that he was not going to be getting out of Virginia in time. With the flight option exhausted, Berkeley turned to his other option, fight. Berkeley had some cannons, those that had been used before to fire on Bacon's men in the harbor, that he ordered positioned for the defense of the city. He likewise sent out scouts to figure out the position of the rebel army. For the second time this episode, the scouts are not going to be heard from again, which was still a very ominous sign. So yeah, not a great week to be a scout. On June 23rd, the call was made. Bacon was just two miles from Jamestown at the front of a lot of angry colonists. Berkeley almost instantly realized that this was not going to be a battle. It was going to be a slaughter. Bacon was at the head of approximately 400 men. Berkeley had about 30 militia members to defend the city. And worse, Berkeley had concerns that amongst the militia members present, 
their loyalties were in question. Berkeley, wanting to avoid the wholesale destruction of Jamestown, declared the city open and told his men to stand down. Bacon was going to take Jamestown without firing a single shot. General Bacon, as he was now so lovingly being called, was not going to waste any time making sure that everybody inside of Jamestown understood where the power now lied. As soon as the town was captured, Bacon called for the Virginia Assembly to meet. It goes without saying that this meeting was not business as usual, and one has to imagine at this point for a man like Berkeley, he must have been wondering if he was going to leave that meeting alive. Once assembled, Bacon made his demands directly to Governor Berkeley. Well, he must have enjoyed being called General Bacon by his men, he wanted to actually make things official, and thus demanded to be made a commission general. Now, to be fair to the guy, William Berkeley has had an especially bad couple of days. In the realm of bad days, his are ranking up there. And things really are not about to get any better. Of course, a respectable man like Berkeley is going to act in this situation with only the highest honor and dignity, right? Well, if you consider a temper tantrum the highest honors and dignity, then yeah, he performed pretty well. Berkeley at this exact moment has absolutely no power at all. Well, on the surface Bacon is asking for these things to be granted, nobody at all is mistaken into believing that these were really requests. Bacon is telling Berkeley what he expects Berkeley is going to do. Instead of accepting the inevitable or attempting to fight back against Bacon and his forces, however, Berkeley instead rips his shirt off and just requests that Bacon shoot him right there on sight. As though this was not dramatic enough, Berkeley then challenged Bacon to a sword fight. Bacon, not really interested in this, makes a quick speech saying that he just wants to protect the good people of Virginia and needs his commission. Having lost the day, the governor turned around and just walked out. Bacon, for his part, was trying to make it appear that he just wanted what was best for the colony. However, with Berkeley unwilling to play ball, and Bacon actually requiring that the governor acquiesce to his demands in order to grant legitimacy to his cause, Bacon needed to be clear that he wasn't there messing around. Bacon followed Berkeley back to his house, let him know that failure to comply to the demands of the people would result in Bacon's forces killing the whole lot of them. Berkeley, unmoved, shut the door in Bacon's face. With the ball back in Bacon's court, the general ordered his men to present arms and aim them at the Burgesses. So a quick lay of the land here. Berkeley is shut up inside of his house, pouting. The members of the House of Burgesses are watching from the windows of the assembly house with intrigue. Bacon and his men have now turned towards them and are aiming their weapons at those same assembly members watching with intrigue. Intrigue quickly turns to fear for the assemblymen who are not interested in being shot. Despite Berkeley's wish for them to stand from beside him, the assembly quickly yells back that they will find a way to give Bacon what he wants, just please don't shoot us. With the governor broken and the assembly just wanting to avoid being shot, Bacon was now free to dictate his terms. Bacon, needing to protect his victory, set his men around Jamestown to keep a constant watch. Bacon dealt several times with the politicians of the city attempting to make an escape. 
This includes Berkeley, who was twice caught and sent back home. This all makes sense as one assumes that the men of the assembly must have been worried about their personal safety. How long before Bacon declares himself a dictator and just purges the whole lot of them? The early demands by Bacon make sense. He demands reparations for his ship that got sunk, which is okay, fine. He orders those friends of the governor, the ones who have been receiving so much special treatment from Berkeley over the years, to be excluded from holding public office. Bacon ordered that a letter be sent to England to contradict the earlier letter that Berkeley had sent requesting help and a new governor to be sent over. Basically, Bacon wanted to reassure England that everything is just fine. Nothing to worry about over here. Please don't send the English regulars to reassert control over the colony. You may be wondering at this point, why didn't Bacon demand that Berkeley himself be removed from power? Bacon, despite everything, still at this point needed Berkeley. The goal of Bacon was to reform Virginia. However, an attack against a royal governor was something that would bring the ire of the crown. Bacon isn't seeking independence from England, and this is a critical point to make. He was instead wanting to change the dynamic of power inside of Virginia. We are going to discuss this more in a few episodes' time when we discuss what exactly Bacon's rebellion is, plus the legacy. However, I wanted to at least throw that out there right now. All of this has become known as the June Assembly. With Berkeley momentarily out of power, Bacon set forward on a series of reforms. The Assembly met on June 25, 1676, to hear and consider Bacon's newest requests. The Assembly was anxious to get this over with and get Bacon and his men out of Jamestown as quickly as possible. The members of the House of Burgesses were nervous that the wrong step would mean that they all end up dead. Better to just get this done and get Bacon out of town. The first thing that the Assembly considered was a declaration of war against the Indians. Notice that this isn't against a single tribe or even a collection of tribes. This was a general declaration of war against the Indians. This goes along nicely with the second bill that Bacon pushed through. The second bill was condemning Berkeley for his choosing to support his profit from the fur trade instead of the safety of the colonists along the frontier. With little ability to respond or defend the trade, the House of Burgesses stripped Berkeley of all of his authority over the fur trade with the Indians. Next, the Bacon camp turned to those hated forts along the frontier. These forts for many had been proof of Berkeley's true allegiances, and they certainly were not going to allow them to survive. Instead of defensive forts, Bacon was going to lead his men on an offensive campaign that was to be funded by selling the captured natives into slavery and then selling their land to prospective buyers. This would, in the eyes of Bacon, kill multiple birds with one stone. It would reduce the tax burden by getting rid of the fort tax. It would eliminate the Indian problem because now not only can you kill them, you can capture, sell, and relocate them. Finally, it would reduce the skyrocketing value of land in Virginia by increasing the supply to meet that growing demand. Speaking of the economy, Bacon also ordered that a commission be formed to examine the widespread, and often true, rumors of fiscal mismanagement in the colony. Bacon wanted to have a full accounting of how much revenue the colony made, and more importantly, he wanted to know exactly where that money was going and who the beneficiaries were. For many in the assembly, this itself had to be a terrifying call. 
We've discussed in earlier episodes that Berkeley was using tax money to enrich himself and his closest supporters. It is a fair bet that there were a lot of men in the House of Burgesses that really did not want to open that box. Bacon also introduced one-year term limits on county sheriffs, lest they grow too powerful. He also ended the system whereby the councillors appointed by Berkeley were exempt from taxation. This goes directly towards ending the system of cronyism that had become so systemic during the years of Berkeley's time as governor. At the same time, Bacon moved to increase the amount of popular sovereignty throughout the colony. Previously, it had been accepted that the governor would appoint judges out in the counties. This meant that the governor had a near stranglehold on the justice system as he was directly responsible for those men having and maintaining their positions. Under the new Bacon regime, judges would be split equally between the governor's appointees and judges who were popularly elected. This again reduces the power of the central Virginia government while increasing the power of the individual counties. Things were going well for Nathaniel Bacon. In just three weeks, he had managed to overthrow the governor in all but name and spearheaded a massive series of reforms throughout the colony. Unfortunately for Bacon, however, problems still did exist for him as well. While remaining in Jamestown would be the logical move at this point, as he continues to reform the colony, Bacon was a ruler by popular demand. The risk associated with popular rule is that you need to do what is necessary in order to make the masses happy, otherwise they will choose somebody else to lead them. Bacon's closest supporters were those that had seen the conditions out on the frontier and knew how much Berkeley was ignoring their plight. Thus, on June 25th, when news reached Bacon that Indian forces had led a raid just 25 miles from Jamestown and eight colonists now were dead, he had little choice but to conclude his time in Jamestown and respond accordingly. This was a huge relief for members of the House of Burgesses who really, really, really wanted Bacon and his men to leave. As a final act, Bacon pushed through a final piece of legislation before he could conclude the June Assembly. The final act was to force an irrevocable pardon for himself and his men for the actions over the last few months. Knowing that resistance was pointless and just wanting to escape alive, Governor Berkeley signed all of the bills that Bacon had pushed through the legislature. As soon as the ink was dry, Berkeley wasted no time in dissolving the June Assembly. Bacon and his men withdrew from Jamestown to deal with the Indian threat, and at least for a moment, Berkeley and his remaining supporters could exhale. However, everybody knew that they were not done dealing with Bacon and his men. Instead, they had simply been granted a momentary reprieve. Bacon would be back, and more radical changes were likely to follow. Next time, we are going to continue to discuss the events that unfolded following the end of the June Assembly. Men like Governor Berkeley were stuck trying to figure out what their next move was and if there was any way to survive, both politically and physically, the storm that had befallen them. As always, I appreciate you all listening. I hope you are all remaining safe, and I hope you all have a fantastic two weeks. I will see you back here then, where we will pick up the story of Bacon's Rebellion.